Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Welcome back to the show this week. I have another fantastic interview with another amazing scientist. But before we get there, I just want to remind you, please give a rating and review to the show if you're enjoying the content and share it with your family and friends. Uh, Really appreciate that. And if you haven't already grabbed a copy of my book, Relentless, make sure you do. You won't regret it. It's an incredible story that is really about taking control of your own health and being responsible for your own health and thinking outside the box. And it's the story of bringing my mum back to health after a massive aneurysm. And it will really make you think about the way our medical system works and about why you need to be proactive when it comes to health and preventative health. Um, and it's a really just a, a, a heartwarming story as well. So you can grab that on my website at lisatarmati.com or you can go to any bookshop in New Zealand and order that or get that in. Um, and it's available also on audiobook for those people who love to listen to books rather than reading them. I know I certainly do a lot of that. Um, just also a reminder, if you have any questions around some of the topics that we've discussed on any of the podcast episodes, please reach out to me, lisa at lisatarmody.com. And if you want help with one of your health journeys or your performance journeys, or you want to work on some goal setting, on some mindset, please reach out there as well. We'd love to work with you. Um, So today I have the Dr. Anitra Carr, who is a scientist at Otago uh, University. She's currently a research associate professor at the University of Otago Christchurch School of Medicine. She's established her own research group, uh, the Nutrition and Medicine Research Group, and undertakes translational bench-to-bedside research comprising observational studies and clinical trials on the role of oral and intravenous vitamin C in infection, cancer, metabolic health, mood, cognitive health. And she endeavors to understand the underlying biomechanical, uh, biochemical, sorry, mechanisms of action as well as improve uh, patient outcomes. So she's a person who loves to actually not just be in the lab and looking at petri dishes, but to actually help people in human intervention studies. She currently has a study underway, which I'm really, really excited uh, and waiting with beta breath to see what comes out. It's a sepsis study in the Christchurch Hospital with 40 patients. And we talk a little bit about that today. And we talk about the role of vitamin C today, continuing the, the conversations that we've had with some of the world's best vitamin C researchers. We're looking at the antioxidant properties. We're looking at the pro-oxidant properties. We're looking at vitamin C as a cofactor in so many different um, mechanisms in the body. We're talking about its role in uh, the production of adrenaline and vasopressin and in um, hypoxic inducible factor in, in relation to cancer, uh, and especially in relation to sepsis, which is obviously a very important one for me. One in five ICU patients in New Zealand dies of sepsis. This is a massive problem. Worldwide, between 30 and 50 million people a year get sepsis. This is something that you really need to know about. You need to understand it. And Dr. Anitra Carr also shares why you may not get a doctor in a hospital situation actually understanding all of the information that we're going to be sharing with you today. So educate yourself learn from this 
and enjoy the show with Dr. Anitra Khan. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, I have Dr. Anitra Carr, and today we're continuing the series around vitamin C. Uh, we've, we've had some brilliant doctors and scientists on in the last few weeks, and it's been really exciting uh, to share some of the latest research. And we have one of our own Kiwi uh, scientists with us today, Dr. Anitra Carr from Christchurch. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> it's fantastic to have you. Um, so, Dr. Nedra, can you just tell us a little bit of your background and how you got involved with vitamin C research? Uh, well, I first started researching back in the late 90s, so 1998, and I had just finished a PhD with the University of Otago, and I had been studying how reactive oxygen species that are produced by white blood cells react with our own tissues mm -hmm. and damage our own tissues because these white blood cells produce these really reactive oxidants such as hydrogen peroxide, which is hair bleach, and hypochlorous acid, which is household bleach, so very strong oxidants, and they produce these to help kill bacteria mm -hmm. in our bodies. But these um, oxidants can also react with our own tissues, and that's what contributes to inflammation and the processes of inflammation and so I've just been studying how these oxidants react with certain components in our tissues and when I finished that I thought oh, it'd be really interesting to investigate how antioxidants such as vitamin c which is one of the most potent antioxidants in our body mm -hmm. can help potentially protect against this damage so scavenge those oxidants before they react with our tissues and uh -huh. help decrease the inflammation associated with um, infectious uh, conditions. And, and so I applied um, to, uh, you know, various people in the United States. I wanted to go to the, you know, continue my yeah. research in the United States. And so I applied to several people over there who were doing research in the area that I was interested in. And they all wrote back and said, yes, you know, we have postdoctoral positions available. And so I selected one on the advice of my PhD supervisor. And this was um, Professor Boltz Fry. He was at the time in Boston. Mm -hmm. And after I said, yes, I'd like to work with him, he wrote back and said, oh, by the way, I'm moving to the West Coast, to Oregon. And... I'm going to be the director, new director of the Linus Pauling Institute. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's very fortuitous. And yeah. I, like, I like the West Coast of the United States. I've done a bit of work in California during my PhD. And so I was quite happy with that. And so the Linus, Linus Pauling had died just a few years uh, prior to that. Mm -hmm. And so the Linus Pauling Institute, which was in California at the time, kind of needed a new home. I yep. think they're in Palo Alto. And so they ended up going to Oregon State University because that was, uh, for a couple of reasons, that was Linus Pauling's alma mater. So we had done his undergraduate research when I was mm -hmm. still in agricultural college. And um, also because the library there was going to be able to host his papers. And so he has, you know, this collection of his writings and papers is thousands and thousands of documents because, as you've stated before, he's yeah. one of the only people to have been awarded two unshared Nobel Prizes. Yeah. So one around his work. Yeah. Um, so one was in chemistry around his work on the nature of the chemical bond. And the other one was a peace prize for his anti-nuclear campaigning. And so the Linus, uh, the Oregon State University Library has his complete collection. It's called the Linus Pauling Special Collection. Um, and so I spent a few years at Oregon State University researching um, how vitamin C can protect against oxidation of 
low-density lipoprotein particles, which are what the body uses wow. to transport uh, fat and cholesterol around the body in the yeah. bloodstream because our cells need cholesterol. But most people know low-density lipoprotein as bad cholesterol. Yeah. I mean, it's not intrinsically bad, but if it becomes oxidised, it then can, can contribute to the development of atherosclerotic plaques and contribute to cardiovascular disease. And so oh. I was looking at how vitamin C can protect against oxidation of this particle and thereby potentially protect, you know, against development of atherosclerosis. And, and I was what was the outcome of that? Because <laughs> that would be really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So I was particularly interested in the oxidants produced by white blood cells because these can react with these low-density lipoprotein particles and oxidise them. And vitamin C is a great scavenger, you know, protected. And I was interested in how much do you need and how's it protect. You know, is is at the real biochemical um, level. Yeah, what is the action? Yeah. Um, and but also during this time, so late nineteen nineties, uh, we were interested. Uh, Professor Boltz Fry was interested in the recommended dietary intakes for vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of countries are very low. I mean, these recommendations yeah, are yeah. primarily to prevent deficiency diseases such as scurvy. Whereas we believe, you know, the, the recommendations should be higher to help um, reduce the risk of chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease and cancer and that sort of thing. That's, mm. um, you know, better health Rather than outcome. Yeah. And yep. so in the late 1998, the Food and Nutrition Board of the Institutes of Medicine was uh, re-examining the recommended dietary intake for bi- for the antioxidant vitamins, the so A, C, and E, in the United States, and we wrote um, a comprehensive review around you know all the scientific evidence at the time for what sort of doses of vitamin C appear to protect against cardiovascular disease and cancer, and so we made a recommendation of. 120 milligrams a day, which was at that time twice what the recommended Mm -hmm. uh, dietary intake in the States was. It was 60 milligrams a day at the time. And so we submitted that document and it was considered by the Food and Nutrition Board. And also another review I'd written around vitamin C's antioxidant roles in the body uh, versus its pro-oxidant roles. Sometimes vitamin C referred to as having pro-oxidant roles. Yes, I've heard that, yeah. Um, and but to get your head around the antioxidant, it is, it and is it's a it, pro-oxidant. It, it's not a pro, it's vitamin C is an antioxidant. Uh, it's not a not an oxidant pro-oxidant. But what it does is it can reduce. So oxidants, uh, antioxidants donate electrons and they reduce yep. oxidized compounds. So it um, reduces transition metal ions such as copper and iron. Yeah. So these, these are metals in our body that can redox cycle, so they can produce oxidants. Yep, and we've talked um, about redox before on the podcast. Yeah, so, uh, yep. so what vitamin C is, does is it converts these metal ions into a reduced state, and then those metal ions can go on and generate oxidants. So does it give them iron and itself, a longer life, does it? Is that how it sort of it gives them a, a iron and copper a way to, to yeah, keep going? You know, so it re- regenerates them so that these these metal ions can keep producing oxidants. But in our body, these metal ions are all um, sequestered away and protected by proteins. They're not floating around free. Mm-hmm. So in the body, vitamin C doesn't 
seem to do that based on the evidence. It seems to just have its, you know, true antioxidant roles, not this kind of pro-oxidant by, byproduct, as you might call it. So this sort of evidence was considered by the Food and Nutrition Board and they decided, yeah, it does, does appear to have antioxidant roles in the body. And, and they, so they um, also referred to Mark Levine's seminal mm-hmm. work to kind of work out a dose, a daily dose of vitamin C they thought would be good to help um, foster this antioxidant potential in the body, potentially protect against these other you know, chronic long-term diseases such as cardiovascular disease and cancer. And so they did end up increasing the RDA for vitamin C in the States from 60 to 90 milligrams a day for men and 75 milligrams a day for women. So that was good. Not quite as high as we would have liked to see, but still a step in the right direction. They're very conservative, aren't they? And they're yeah. slow to respond and was conservative. Because <laughs> you'd think like being in the preventative space would be a good thing if we're trying it to... Is. Um, Prevention is a lot cheaper, a lot easier than exactly. trying to treat the disease. So, yeah. But New Zealand's even worse, isn't it? I think we're at 45 milligrams, which it's is... one of the lowest ridiculous. RDAs in the world, yeah. Yep. That's um, got to change, surely. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so we're trying to generate the, the evidence to help you know, support an increase in the RDA. Gosh, it's it's also slow. Like you've been doing this for what twenty odd years, and it's well, they still. Do, yeah. They do say that translation of science into you know medical research into pr- clinical practice takes fifteen to twenty years. Wow, that is a really interesting statement because. This is why um, I think, you know, like sharing this sort of information direct from the experts, if you like, um, and I said this with Professor Margaret Visses too, like we have to make sort of educated decisions as people in trouble now, you know, whether you've got cancer or whether, like in my case, have, have a dad who had sepsis, you have to make an educated decision now based on you're running out of time. Um, and, and we're waiting for the research and the research will be great, but it will be another, you know, 10 to 20 years down the line before it actually. And then, you know, in, in the medical um, world, it seems to be a very slow, uh, Dr. Fowler said it beautifully uh, when I had him on last week. Uh, it's like trying to shift a super tanker, critical care he was referring to. <laughs> and he says it's very, very slowly coming around. Um, and I know I had Dr. Ron Hanninghake on as well from the Reardon Institute, um, another fantastic doctor. And he um, talked about uh, medical mavericks. Uh, Dr. Hugh Reardon had, had written three books on people who were really ahead of their time, got in trouble for it, and then actually the research and everything caught up with them later you know um so that that's an interesting so if you're listening to this new zealand has got 45 milligrams as the rda but you really that's just to keep you out of scurvy pretty yeah. much <laughs> you <Yeah>. want more <laughs> oh right so okay so we, we, you've you've done all this antioxidant research and this you know with the, the rs's and you, uh, at the linus Pauling institute um, when did you start to develop an interest in the infectious diseases, sepsis side of that? Because I'd really love to. Yeah, that's that's more recent. So um, after so after about a few yeah three years at the institute, mm-hmm. I decided to have um, our first child mm-hmm. and moved back to New Zealand. And I I made the decision to quit science and just focus on on um, bringing up our family. Yep. Mm-hmm. I ended up having three children <laughs> and stayed home for nine years looking wow. after the children. And 
you know, I made the decision that, you know, they were more important than my career. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an interesting fact as well. Like as a, as a, as a mum and a scientist, you know, like incredibly um, dedicated career that you've know, spent years getting to and then um, trying to juggle mum roles with, mm. with scientist roles and taking nine years out of your career. Has that hurt your career massively or um, been able to catch up, so to speak? It hasn't hurt my career. I mean, I'm I'm 10 years behind my contemporaries, my colleagues, you know, because I took that time out. Uh, but, you know, that's the decision I made mm. and you know, I stand by it because, you know, Absolutely. the research shows that, you know, the first three years of a child's life are very important. So I thought, well, I'll dedicate myself to the children in the early years. Yeah. And um, after those nine years, I thought, right, I've, you know, <laughs> done my right, time. Kids. I'm really keen to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Mum's going to be a working mum from now and, on. <laughs> yeah, and, but I just went back to work part-time, so, you know, within school hours, so that, you know, I'll still be there for them after, you know, after school hours. And and the one of the things that drew me back to work, I was recruited back to run a human intervention study. Mm-hmm. What really excited me because when I was in the lab doing lab-based research, I always felt too removed from the people yeah. who were meant to be helping. Yep. And yeah. and so I'm much more interested in the whole person and how they're feeling, not what's happening inside a single cell, which yeah. is kind of where I was. Sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really excited and and um, really grateful to be recruited back, especially after taking nine years out, you know, from my career. The discoveries had been made during that time that I had no idea until I went back and I thought, okay, I've got a bit of catching up to do. And So and, what was that first intervention study, that human uh, intervention? This was a kiwi fruit study. So mm-hmm. kiwi fruit are very high in vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And so we were interested in knowing how many kiwi fruit do you need to eat to get, you know, adequate and optimal vitamin C levels. So it was just mm-hmm. kind of a dose a dosing study. Brilliant. Then we went on to compare kiwi fruit with tablets. So, you know, animal research had shown that, oh, food sources of vitamin C seem to be a bit better than right. tablet it- sources. And so we, th- we thought we'd translate that into a human study. Uh, and what we found is there's no difference. There's no difference. Oh. No difference in uptake of vitamin C uh, from food versus tablets. The body is really good at because we need vitamin C, our body has adapted ways to, you know. Take it wherever it gets it. Take it up regardless of the source. Wow. That's the stru- structure of vitamin C is the same in foods as it is in tablets. So the body recognises it the same, takes up the same amounts. I mean, the benefit of food is that you're also getting all the other vitamins and minerals and fibre. So we still recommend food. But it, it is, in, you know, in our daily diets these days, it's very hard to get you know, your 200 milligrams a day of vitamin C. Just is, you know, fruits what, and veggies, yeah. Just with fruit and vegetables. And as you know, you know, different fruits and vegetables have quite different amounts of vitamin C, which a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, I mean, no, people no. know that uh, kiwi fruit and, you know, citrus are high, but they may not realise that apples and bananas are actually quite low in vitamin yeah. C. Well, capsicums are quite high. Um, yeah, yeah, broccoli. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't think broccoli. You wouldn't, yeah. yeah. And, and... When you, if you take a supplement, if you decide to take a supplement, is there um, a better supplement? You know, like um, I have heard concerns about corn-derived vitamin C because of the glyphosate um, discussion. And 
Right. Um, and that's a bit hard to track, really, mm. the, the types of vitamin C. But is there any sort of research around? I mean, I've, I've talked previously on a couple of the with a couple of the, the doctors and scientists around liposomal delivery. Um, have you seen anything in, in that department, or you know, any any supplementation method that's better? Uh not convincingly better. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might be trials that show it does slightly better than, you know, just your normal chewable vitamin C. Uh, but I I just go for the, the standard cheap vitamin yeah, C. Yeah, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be super special. Like it's a pretty no. simple molecule, isn't it? Like it, mm-hmm. the body is pretty, yeah. like you say, it needs it, it knows it. it liposomal can... vitamin C is kind of wrapped up in lipids. And, yeah. And, and the body doesn't, doesn't need that because like you say it is designed to recognize you know vitamin c in its natural form and foods and such like yeah so um who was i think dr thomas Levy was saying it bypasses some of the digestive issues you know because with vitamin c you can get um you know digestive stress when you you take take bigger high doses some people like we're talking up for more than four grams a day, some yep. people can get gastro. Get a bit of so, yeah, maybe it does protect against that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so then you've moved into and, and forgive me if I'm jumping ahead, but um, very keen to talk about the role of sepsis and pneumonia and patients and and ICU yeah, so, reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so after about five years, you know, of doing that research part time. I managed to get a Health Research Council, Sir Charles Hooker's um, Health Research Fellowship, which allowed me to move into the more clinical arena of, you know, studying infection, which was an area I was interested in. And so we've uh, done some observational studies where we have recruited patients who have pneumonia, measured their vitamin C levels and 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 their you know, levels of oxidative stress and found that they have very low uh, levels of vitamin C and high levels of oxidative stress. And the more severe the condition, the worse this is, the lower the vitamin C levels and the higher the oxidative stress. So if those patients with pneumonia go on to develop sepsis, um, and sepsis is kind of this uncontrolled inflammatory response to an infection, severe infection, and that can develop into organ, multi-organ failure and the patient's yeah. need Admitted to the intensive care unit, and that can go on further to um, develop into septic shock due to you know failure of the cardiovascular system, and you know up to half those patients die. It's the major cause of death in intensive and critically yeah. ill patients. Yeah, and that's what and, you know I unfortunately yeah. experienced with my yeah. dad. Yeah. Um, and, and so with um, you know, the organs starting to um, break down. So when you get when you get anything like pneumonia or sepsis, the, the body's requirement just goes up um, yeah. you know, a hundredfold yeah. or more. Yeah. yeah, at least at least 30-fold, yes. Yeah. And so it's very hard to get those amounts into um, a patient orally. And so when, when patients are in the intensive care unit, the generally kept sedated because they're being mechanically ventilated. And so they're given nutrition in in two different ways because they can't eat. And so the main way is to drip feed it directly into the stomach, liquid nutrition into the stomach through a nasogastric tube. And the other way is to inject it directly into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And so the recommended amounts of vitamin C by these means is about 100 milligrams a day. That's nothing. So what, what we did in one of our studies was we looked at um, 
how much vitamin C these patients should theoretically have in their blood based on how much vitamin C they're consuming. Because 100 milligrams a day in a healthy person is more than adequate to, well, provides adequate plasma, what we would consider adequate plasma levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we mapped out what it would look like in, a, in, in these patients based on how much they were getting. And then we compared it with what it, we actually measured in, the, in their blood. Yep. And it was way lower than what it theoretically should have been. And so this this was an indication that yes, they need a lot more vitamin C than they're getting in their you know standard um, nutrition, nutrition yeah, and, and that the body obviously has these much higher requirements, which has been shown previously by other other researchers. And so that's leading to almost a scurvy-like situation. I mean, some of these yeah. severe sepsis people, I, I remember uh, seeing one of your graphs there with, you know, the sort of normal community cohort of people, young people, middle-aged people, yeah. and then down into the more severe uh, pneumonia and then sepsis and severe sepsis, and they yeah. are just over the scurvy level. So basically their bodies are falling apart because of that as well as the sepsis, if you like. And, and that's even even on top of, you know, being given it daily, you know, yeah. day, or at least 100 milligrams a day, they're still really It's just not touching the sides. Right. Um, yeah, and... Uh, so um, why is this not like even like for people going into the hospital? Um, why is why is it that even though okay we 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 may not yet know the dosages, why is not every hospital testing at least their really sick patients what their vitamin C levels are and then treating it the nutrient deficiency only? You know, like even apart from the the high dose intravenous stuff but just actually with my dad I was unable to get a vitamin c test done to prove my case you know I I couldn't prove my case because I couldn't get it tested yes no it's so true it's because uh doctors don't learn about nutrients in medical school at all yeah training Uh, so they're not familiar with how important they are for the body they're not familiar with all the recent research around all the different functions and mechanisms of action that vitamin C carries out. There's, you know, over the last 10 years, all these brand new mechanisms and functions have been discovered. Uh, they think we know everything there is to know about it. But yeah, and we no, don't. We're new <laughs> things all the time, which makes it very exciting. Yeah, yeah, and, it is. Um, and so they don't, first of all, they don't understand the hospital system isn't, isn't set up to measure, routinely measure it. It is only ever measured if scurvy, if someone comes in with suspected scurvy, and even then yeah. a lot of doctors um, aren't used to recognising the symptoms of scurvy. It's not something they're familiar with because, you know, it doesn't... They you know, it no longer exists because that's yeah, what that's sailors not, had in the 1800s. It's <laughs> apparent in the, you know, the Western, Western yeah. world. Yeah, <laughs> and, and certainly in the sick population. Yes, but I think... Um, so when I first applied for, for funding to carry out these studies in, in uh, pneumonia and sepsis, there were um, only a couple of papers had been published at that time looking at vitamin C sepsis, and that was Barry Fowler's yep. um, safety, you know, dosing study. Yeah, that, that phase one yep, phase trial. One study, yeah. And another one, small one in Iran. Mm-hmm. And so there was very, very little information out there at the time. and. So, you know, I put in an application for, for us to carry out an intervention study in our ICU at Christchurch. 
So just a small one, 40 people, 20 mm-hmm. getting a placebo control of my vitamin C and 20 getting intravenous vitamin C. And not long after that, um, Paul Merrick's study came out. Yep, yep, yep. And that, that, that stimulated real explosion in research in this field because of the media interest. So yes. the media picked up on it and, um, it, you know, hit the world. I'd been talking about this for years to doctors, you know, um, ICU doctors and that. And not getting anywhere. Trying to get, you know, <laughs> about it. But it wasn't until it hit the media and they heard about it through the media, they thought, oh, okay, maybe there's something here. So that just goes to show how important media can be for... Exactly, um, while we're doing this show. Hey, <laughs> okay, I'm not CNN, but you know what I mean. <laughs> We've got to get this from the ground up moving. yeah. yeah. And so since then, there's been um, many studies carried out around the world, all of different quality. Um, So we're learning more and more information all the time. Clinical trials, you know, they take a long time to run. Uh, Patient recruitment being the most difficult part. The other thing is that a lot of the clinical trialists, the clinical researchers, um, are used to running drug trials. And so they treat vitamin C Mm -hmm. like a drug, but it's not a drug. It's a nutrient. It's a vitamin that the body is specially designed to take up and use, which Low is very risk. drugs. And so um, they don't always understand how vitamin C works in the body. Yep. And it's important to know how it's working um, in order to design good good studies, good quality studies. So a lot of the, the data that's come out um, may be a, a, impacted by how well the study was done and thought out. So, that, you know, there's, there's still we still don't know, you know, all the important aspects about, you know, the dose, how how often should you give it, um, when should, you know, when should you give it. I mean, ideally it should be given, you know, as early as possible. Early as possible. At the hospital. Yep. Don't wait until they're at death's door and septic shock, you know. It's hard for a vitamin to do something at that stage, even really high, you know. Amen. Even <laughs> really high dose vitamin, yeah. you know. Yep. The earlier you give it, the yeah. longer you give it for. Don't just, you know, most of these trials have given it for four days and then they stop. Yeah, but I've wondered that. continue the whole time they're in the ICU because one pharmacokinetic study showed that when you stop that vitamin C, some of those patients just drop straight back down to where they were. Exactly. You know, they need keep need that continued input. While so why, why has it been made that it's only, a, you know, all the studies I've seen, I think, have been four-day, 96-hour studies. Occasionally one of them is or for the length of stay in ICU, yeah. but most of them have been 96 hours and, and most of them have been very, very conservative dosing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from, from what I understand, conservative dosing. And I know Dr. Barry Fowler said, um, well, there's some, con- you know, consideration about oxalate and kidney function. And I'm like, yeah, but this is still, like that's um, a very low risk for someone and who's got sepsis. If a patient has kidney dysfunction in an ICU, they put on hemodialysis anyway, so which clears the excess vitamin C. So it's not, not such an issue for those patients. But, uh, yeah, a lot of these studies were designed to reproduce the, the first studies that came out to see right. if they were reproducible. So that's why they're using similar um, regimes. But now that we know more about it, you know, each, each study adds another piece to the puzzle. And so hopefully future studies will, you know, look more into what dose do you actually need. Yeah. And it probably varies depending on, you know, the, yeah. the type of illness. The severity. The, and... the severity, et cetera. Um, 
how long and and I and I believe you know once they leave the ICU so patients who've had sepsis who survive sepsis they can go on to have have real um Disability, yeah. problems, physical disabilities, cognitive issues, psychological issues like depression and anxiety. And so, you know, I really believe if they keep taking vitamin C when they leave the hospital, just orally, you know, that yep. might help with those conditions. That hasn't been researched yet. Yep. Um, so that's you know, a whole area of research that should be carried out too. So if I was to ask you, in your dream world where, you, where your resources were unlimited and you had lots of money and you had lots of people to help you do all these and you had enough patients to enroll, what are some of the things that you would, like as a, as a scientist and you understand some of the mechanisms and the cofactors, which we all want to get onto as well, um, what are some of the, the studies that you would like to see happen? You know, like, uh, you know, uh, so we can move this along faster. You know, like what are what are some of the key things? So quality of life afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Dosages. What, yes, what? Really practical things that the doctors need to know, I think, is what, what's important, like how much to give, how often to give it. You know, do you, most of the studies have done the, the four times a day because that's what was done in the initial studies. Um, is it better to give it continuously? So when they're in the in, in ICU, you can just infuse drugs continuously. Um, rather than this kind of bolus dosing. Yeah. So yep. um, do more research around that. Um, so the frequency at dosing and timing, like when do you administer it? How long should you administer it for? I mean, there's yeah, so many important aspects around that. I mean, we've, we've got the foundational research done now. We can start teasing out the, you know, the finer details now, I think, rather than just doing the same study designs over and over again. Yeah, and, and reproduce those, yeah. yeah. Modify those study designs to start addressing these, you know, other issues. Uh, and there's some there's some really big studies underway at the moment, like one in Canada with 800 people. I mean, they're, you know, the, they'll give yeah. us really good information, those sorts of studies, rather than that, you know, the little studies that some of us who live in small, you know. Small, small countries small that can <laughs> afford those. That's right. Studies that cost millions and millions of dollars. And, and you know, uh, is, is there a trouble with funding because of, you know, it's not a drug that we're developing here? Is that make it harder to get funding? It's extremely hard to get funding because, you know, often on the um, assessing committee, it's, you know, often medical people on the assessing yeah. committees who don't believe in vitamin C, have, yeah. have only heard the bad press or the misinformation, yeah. don't understand the importance of the relevance. And so, that's where this this outreach is really important. It's just educating people um, about the science behind it. You know, it's not hocus pocus. Yeah, you know, it's, it's real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I can share, like, I mean, and I've shared a little bit on the past episodes, but with with my case with my dad, uh, yeah, I was, I I know, I know, felt they just put me in that oh whackery, mm. quackery right. pot, and they they. Um, paid lip service to listening to me. They didn't really, and but I'm quite a, well, in this case, I had to be quite forceful because uh, my dad was dying and um, I, I didn't go away. <laughs> I 
I wouldn't go away. Most people would go away because of, and, and you know, I just wish I'd know, I knew then what I know now even because I wasn't that deep into the research, you know. Um, and now I am <laughs> deep into the research and, and really an advocate for this. But, you know, I, I was treated like... Um, there was one really good doctor who listened to me who advocated. He didn't believe in it. He didn't understand the mechanisms of action or any of that sciencey stuff, but he did advocate for me at the ethics committee, whereas everyone else would just rolled their eyes, basically. And and this is why I think it's so important to share that, this, to come back again and again to the science, the science, the science, and and to, for them to just open up their eyes just because they didn't learn it in medical school and it's not in their current textbook for, like you say, because it takes 20 years probably to get into that textbook, that they, um, and because it's a vitamin, they just immediately shut down is, is, is how I felt. They just immediately went, just eat an orange, you know, and you're good to go. I mean, the surgeon you know, um, I had a, a friend that was going into surgery and she was like, should I have intravenous vitamin C before I go into surgery to prepare my body? You know, very logical thing to do in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> said, no, you don't need that. Just take it, just eat an orange, you know. And it's like, oh, you don't get, you don't get the whole why and how and what happens when the body goes through a trauma and a surgery or a sepsis or a, any of these things. Um, and I, I don't know, like, the, the, there's, there's some bigger, you know, issues at play with, with the whole pharmacological model that our whole system is built upon and that nutrients and nutrition isn't taught in medical school. So we're up against this big sort of brick wall. And when I tell my story to people just, in, you know, sharing with friends and things, they'll be going, but where's the downside? He was dying anyway. Why couldn't he have it? And I said, well... You know, you're up against machinery. You're up against ethics committees, legal battles, um, and a system that is just very staid and conservative in its approach. Um, And that's not to criticise individual people within the system. I'm I'm not wanting to do that. I'm just trying to go, you know, make people aware because people go into a hospital setting or something and they expect to have the latest and greatest uh, information available that the doctors know all that and un- unfortunately that's not always the case um, do yeah, you I find mean, it frustrating <laughs> yes I mean it's it's not the doctor's fault as such because no. they're, they're very busy people um, they don't have time to keep up with all the literature and they're not likely to be going into the nutrition literature in the first place which is why we try and publish as much of our stuff in you know the clinical literature and they're more likely to see it then and um, and so they just uh, they have their patients' best interests at heart. They've just heard the bad things about vitamin C and the misinformation, and so they don't want to do harm to the patient. I guess is, mm. is where they're coming from, um, and they don't have time to read all the latest information. And that's why just piece by piece, kind of chip it, chip away at that, and you know, educate them. And you know, I hopefully it'll come into you know the the training of you know the new doctors in future hopefully more nutrition courses will be introduced into into yeah. medical training because it's not just vitamin c you know the body no. needs all the vitamins they're all vital to life that's where the name comes from you don't have them you die it's as simple as that um so yeah i think it's exactly. vital that that this information gets gets into you know the, 
into the appropriate arenas. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, I'm passionate about the show is that, you know, my sort of outlook on the whole thing is, uh, yes, I'm not a doctor, but I can I can give voice to doctors and researchers and I can curate and I can investigate and I can um, share and, you know, this is a very emotional topic for me for obvious reasons, but I'm trying to take the emotion out of it because that doesn't help the discussion. It, it, and, and it's really, it, it's hard, um, but I understand the importance because you don't want to, If I, I know that if I share things in an emotional manner, then um, I'll get shut down as having mental health problems and a group being a grieving daughter. When actually, no, I'm an intelligent person who's educated herself in this mm-hmm. and I've got the best people and the best researchers and the best scientists and the best doctors sharing their latest research. And I hope that by that doing that, you can get, you know, one mind after the other and just get them to understand um, uh, rather than the, the you know, um, the emotional side of things. Because what, what, what I do want to also share with the story is that every person's life that is saved is a family that's not grieving, mm-hmm. You know, these are not statistics. When Dr. Barry Fowler's research or Dr. Merrick's research and you see a drop from, I think Dr. Merrick's was 40% mortality to 8% and Dr. Berry's was uh, something like 49 down to 29. Don't quote me on the numbers, but big numbers in drops in mortality. And you go, those are just dozens and or not if not hundreds of lives that are you know are saved and those families are saved from that that grief you know and and worldwide there is something well I've heard a couple of estimates between 30 and 50 million people a year who get sepsis of those you know one in five I've, I've heard in your research one in five in New Zealand ICUs dies of sepsis this is a huge problem. This is as big as cancer and actually is, a, is one of the complications often of cancer uh, therapies. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think people understand the enormity of sepsis itself um, and then, you know, pneumonia, and then we can go into the discussion around COVID and cancer and all of those other things. It's, it's, it's like we're talking millions of lives every year around the world. So this research is just absolutely crucial. You know, and um, sorry, I've gotten on my bandwagon a little bit, but <laughs> I really want to get this information out there, and that I think it's really, really important. Um, let's change tack a little bit and just talk a little bit briefly because I haven't covered this subject with uh, the other vitamin C interviews that I've done um, around the, the cofactor. Uh, so vitamin C is a cofactor for so many different areas. So I, I remember from one of your lectures, um, it has epigenetic um, influences. It has like with collagen synthesis and that has, and that's not just for your skin and your hair and your nails, but also has implications for cancer. You've got your HIF, uh, which Professor uh, Margaret Visser's talked about, your, your hypoxic inducible factor, tumor growth, can you just go and, 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 and give me a little bit of information around the, the vasopressor one? It would be very good. Um, and anything else that, that pops to mind there? Yeah, so a cofactor is, is a compound that helps uh, enzyme function. So everything in our cells 
relies on the functions of enzymes to carry out reactions in our cells. All the chemical reactions require enzymes. Mm-hmm. And so a cofactor supports that function. And so early on when I was um, just starting in, the, in this area of research in the, in the field of sepsis, um, I, was, I was looking at the different cofactor functions of vitamin C, and one of them is a, a cofactor for the enzyme which synthesizes noradrenaline. Mm-hmm. And noradrenaline is the main, one of the main drugs, as you might say, that's given to patients who are going into septic shock. So it's given, given to the patients to try and increase their blood pressure. And it works by um, con- making the muscles around the blood vessels contract. Yep. Make the blood vessels a bit smaller, and so it increases your blood pressure. And so vitamin C is a cofactor for the enzyme that naturally synthesizes noradrenaline in our body. And there's another another enzyme which synthesizes uh, hormones, mm-hmm. one of which is vasopressin. Yep. And this is another drug that's also sometimes given to these patients to help yep. increase blood pressure. And it works by increasing uh, the reuptake of water by the kidneys so that, that increases your blood volume and hence your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So... You know, for a lot of a lot of ICU patients, uh, they're given noradrenaline, and sometimes they're given vasopressin on top of that to you know really try and get their blood pressure yeah, up because they're yeah they're collapsing their cardiovascular so system. And and, and and I realised oh wait a minute, vitamin C is also a cofactor for this enzyme that synthesises vasopressin. So here it is, a cofactor for um, two quite different enzymes that synthesise vasopressors naturally in our body and so if these patients are coming into the ICU very low in vitamin C and going into shock is one of those reasons because they don't have enough vitamin C in their body to support natural vasopressor function yeah Yeah. hence the doctors you know have to give them these drugs but if we're able to give them vitamin C early enough to that it could potentially support their own natural synthesis of these vasopressors in the body uh, which is a much better way to do it because if drugs are given you know from the outside, yeah, yeah. They're, they're often given in high doses and not regulated and so can cause side effects. Whereas if it's being produced in the body, the body knows what it's doing. It regulates how much and how often, you know, all those sort of oh, yeah. details. And so you don't get the nasty side effects. Can I share a, a, a bit of a story there? Because sure. um, uh, b- both my mum and her case where she had an aneurysm four years ago, she was on noradrenaline and mm-hmm. it could only give, be given in the ICU and, and originally she was in the neurological ward um, and they couldn't do it there. And I only realised, like, she was in, going into a coma. So mm-hmm. she uh, had massive brain damage going into a coma. The, when they took her up to ICU, they could give her the noradrenaline. That opened up the... The, the the vessels in the in the head a little bit um or, or kept the pressure up so that the vessels were open um yeah. to stop the vasospasms in her case which was killing uh parts of her brain but she'd been in the in the neurological ward where they couldn't give any of that earlier and so the damage had already been um done partly and then with with the case with my dad I, back then i didn't know anything about vitamin c of course um with the case with my dad in july this year he was in I, I got vitamin C, but it was on day 13 of uh, his 15-day battle because I had, had to go through ethics committee and, wow. and, and all of that sort of jazz. Uh, 
so he was an absolute death doorstep, should have been dead days ago, according to the doctors. They couldn't believe he was still going, but he was one tough man. Right. Yeah. So I don't know how he was still alive, but he was. And the very first uh, infusion that we got of vitamin C, immediately we were able to take him off NORAD for yeah. a period of about eight hours. Yeah. We needed the vitamin C again. It took me another 18 hours before I could get permission to get the second one. Unfortunately, I couldn't get it in the six-hour bolus, which would right. have been yeah. ideal. Um, we gave him initially 15 grams. His um, So this was, again, multiple organ failure, fecal matter in the peritoneum, uh, de- de- desperate, desperate, desperate straits. Um, his... CRP, his C-reactive protein, dropped from 246 down to 115. His white blood cell count uh, improved and his kidney function went from 27% to 33%. And they were able to take him off vasopressors and uh, noradrenaline for um, about eight hours. That is incredible for someone who could die at any moment. And... We eventually, we failed because I, you know, I struggled to get the second, I struggled to get the third infusion and it really was too late. But um, even at that point, I thought that might be interesting for your research. I have all the medical records, by the way, if you want to have a look at the the, the data exactly, but uh, it, it really was a strong uh, he doesn't need the noradrenaline. His blood pressure was going up and that was a really, that's a really good sign you know, as is the dropping of the CRP, which was still very high at 115, but it was way better than where it had been. Um, so, goodness, what what would have happened if I'd had it on day one from the surgery? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and none of that is understood, you know. So that's one of the cofactors that, that – um, and, and that brings to mind just as a just as someone who's connecting the dots. If you have an HPA axis problem, like your adrenals aren't doing their job well, and your cortisol, vitamin C would probably be a good thing to take to support. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes referred to as a, as a stress hormone because it is involved in, in the adrenal response. So, and people who are under stress, uh, you know, or Animal studies where they've stressed animals, they appear, you know, need to use, they use more vitamin C, need generate more vitamin C. The animals that can synthesize it themselves, they generate more vitamin C to compensate. Exactly, yeah. And we can't make our own anymore, so we have to take more if we're under stressful conditions. Exactly. And and that's a really, you know, it's just a funny thing of evolution that we've lost the ability to synthesize more as we, like like, um, animals like the goat, um, especially it can synthesize like a ton more when it needs it. We, 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 we were given big brains so that we could make vitamin C so we could take it. <laughs> um, what are some of the other cofactors, um, you know, just as we start to wrap it up, but just um, uh, a couple of the other important cofactors, um, collagen. Why is collagen important apart from you want nice skin and hair and your joints? Um, what I, I I did hear in one of the lectures about collagen helping um, stop metastasis of cancers. Right. Yeah. That's that's one mechanism. It's also very important in wound healing. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, a lot of you know a reasonable number of surgeons are aware of this, and they they are a lot more open to people take often open to people taking vitamin C around surgery before and after surgery just to help with that wound healing. Oh wow. 
Yes, which is which is great. And um, and oncologists are they sort of open to um, less, can, you know less so <laughs> less so <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, I've yeah. I've had friends who've told if if you take intravenous vitamin C, we won't do any treatments and this and sort that, of and that is primarily around all the misunderstanding around those early early uh, trials around intravenous vitamin C and yeah. cancer. Uh, where Linus Pauling showed an effect of intravenous vitamin C. The clinicians at the Mayo Clinic who tried to reproduce those studies, they used oral vitamin oral, C, wider yeah. doses, so just small doses over a day. But back in those days, they weren't aware of the different pharmacokinetics of vitamin C. They thought oral and intravenous, oh, they'll just be the same, like with the drug. Um, but it's quite different. Oral t- uptakes a lot lower, much smaller amounts are taken up versus intravenous. You can get really high doses in very quickly. Up to 200 times. I heard Professor Garby Ducks um, saying that intravenous is up to 200 times uh, for short periods, but that short yeah. periods makes a difference because you can get that into the, the tumour cells. Into, um, uh, so that, yeah, and, and this is the, the problem um, Professor Margaret Visses was saying too, you know, the original controversy around Linus Pauling's work and because they didn't have a, an understanding of how could possibly this mechanism of action be working, they just poo-hooed it basically and it caused this big rift, those on this side and those on that side and for the next, uh, what are we, 40-something years later, um, still actually it's problematic. Um, well, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't really until Mark Levine did his, you know, really detailed pharmacokinetic studies that people realised the big differences between oral and intravenous. And also, you know, these more recent discoveries of vitamin C's cofactor functions around regulating genes through HIF and through the epigenetic enzymes um, the, these all ha- these are all mechanisms which which could be involved in its its um, anti anti cancer mechanisms as such, and so you know it's the epigenetic areas. It's very very exciting, very interesting area of research, and um, and I think yeah. it'll 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 enable us to personalise uh, medicine. You know, oh. the future. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, I, 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 I have an epigenetics program as one of my health programs, and um, yeah, that's looking at okay, how are genes being influenced by your environment, and let's optimize your environment to your genes, um, and you know the vitamin C. So the vitamin C ha- helps. So to give people an understanding, so is vitamin C helping the in um, to uh, produce the enzymes that read the DNA, and then therefore having the reactions is that how it works uh it works works as a cofactor so yeah so it um helps the function of the enzymes which um modify the dna so epigenetics so genetics is about the dna itself epigenetics is above the dna so it's a way to regulate the dna as you know yeah usually through adding methyl groups to the DNA, adding and subtracting, and that affects how the DNA is read by the enzymes that read read DNA and t- transcribe so it. turning them on or off for the so, um, simplified. So vitamin C uh, regulates the enzymes which modify the, the methyl groups mm-hmm. and uh, stimulates them coming off or, you know, stimulates different 
mechanisms happening. So switching genes, certain genes on, switching certain genes off. Mm-hmm. You know, it can potentially regulate thousands of genes in our body through its, its stimulation of these enzymes. Wow. So, yeah, I've, I've heard somewhere, I think it was seven or 8,000 genes that are possibly affected by this. So we, we're, we're really at the beginning of the, the vitamin C journey as far as the epigenetics uh, mechanisms is concerned. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Explain, <laughs> you know, a lot of its functions, not just in cancer, but in you know, in all areas of health and disease, these functions could be playing a role. Uh, so, yeah, huge, huge areas of research possible there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is is that? Um, uh, I remember Professor Margaret talking about TT. Is that one of the enzymes? The TET one. Yes, yeah, TET enzymes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And that's important for cancer. Um, well, they're the, they're the enzymes that uh, modify the methylated DNA, so mo- mo- you know, uh, regulating the epigenetics. And yes, they're definitely definitely yeah, involved. They're implicated in the in the cancer process. Wow. Okay, we, we're getting quite technical here. <laughs> um, Doctor Anitra, um, I just want to say thank you very much for your dedication because I, I, I know I've listened to a couple of uh, interviews with you and you've actually sacrificed quite a lot to do the research that you're doing because there isn't a heck of a lot of funding and things are out there. So thank you for, for doing all that. Um, it's it's a, it's a, a labour of love, I, should, I, I can imagine. <laughs> it's a long, slow process. Um, uh, getting the information, getting it to be watertight, scientifically watertight so that we can actually get people help who need help and that at the end of the day is the is the reason I'm doing this podcast and it's the reason you're doing your research and hopefully you know together and with many others we can uh, you know move the story along so that people get helped is there anything that you that we haven't covered that you think would be an important um, message for people listening today uh, well, I think, I mean, of course, infection is very relevant <laughs> these days with COVID. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, information and misinformation floating around out there about vitamin C and COVID. And at this stage, you know, the studies are still at the really early, early stages. Uh, Paul Merrick has, has done a wee study which shows that patients with COVID have, uh, in the ICU do have low vitamin C levels like, you know, other septic mm. patients. Uh, COVID is a severe respiratory infection like, you know, uh, like pneumonia, you know, pneumonia and and, uh, sepsis are complications of COVID. And so I think that the key is to, you know, stay healthy, eat a good health. Your immune system, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, To support your immune system. It doesn't mean you you won't get COVID, um, but it may decrease the severity and the duration so it doesn't go on to become the more severe version, you know, the pneumonia and, and sepsis. So I think that's an important message. And, and if you do, do get the infection, you know, your requirements do go up. So you do need to take more vitamins. You need to take gram amounts rather than milligram amounts. Exactly. Um, once again, to help, you know, prevent it getting even more severe, so, you know, I'm all for prevention yeah, as much as possible, not leaving it till it's too late. So I think, yeah, just look after yourselves, eat well. <laughs> yep, and get your vitamin C, go and buy some kiwi fruit and some oranges today yeah. and some lemons <laughs> and <Yeah>. capsicum <laughs> and some supplements maybe. Um, uh, just as a final thing, you, you, you yourself have a study that's uh, currently underway 
which is really, really exciting. And this is based in the Christchurch Hospital, I believe, in 40 patients in, with sepsis. Um, can you just tell us a little bit the parameters of that study and, and when you think you'll have some yeah. uh, results from that? So this was patients with septic shock. So once again, you know, at the again. severe end. Yeah. Um, and they were administered either a placebo control to so half the patients and the other half were given intravenous vitamin C at a dose of 100 milligrams per kilogram body tissue per day, which equates to about, you know, six, six to seven grams a day. And the reason for that, you know, I had wanted to use the higher dose. Yeah. So very fowler, but the yeah. ethics committee, because when I put this into the ethics committee, uh, there were only the two studies out, which was Berry Fowler's and the small study out of Iran. And they said, well, slightly more people have received a lot, the lower dose versus the higher dose. So we'd rather you use the lower dose, even oh. though there'd be no, no adverse events at any dose no. and subsequently no adverse events in any studies. No. <laughs> and so, you know, we've used the lower dose. Um, we've only just finished recruiting the last patients. It took a while and we had, you know, issues with lockdown. And um, so now we're in the process of analysing the samples that we've collected, analysing the data. And so hopefully we'll be able to pull all that together, you know, sometime next year and publish publish the results next year. Brilliant. I can't wait to see that. And, yeah, that's a little bit frustrating because I would have liked to have seen a study with, you know, the 15 to 18. And even that I thought was still very conservative, um, um, you know, compared to some of the cancer um, dosages. But I understand from what Dr. Barry Fowler said, you know, because of the decreased uh, kidney function often in septic patients and so on. But it's just like, oh, yeah, but they're dying, you know, often. <laughs> and it's a... You know, because that was one of the arguments that was thrown at me. Uh, I could damage my dad's kidneys. Mm. Um, the sepsis was doing that quite nicely, thanks, and he was dying anyway. So why the hell, you yeah. know, not? Um, so that's – but I think even at those dosages, we um, will hopefully see some fantastic results come out of that, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to do slightly more high-powered dosages. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, well, the key is also the size of the study. Our study is very small. Yeah. And we were interested in, the, you know, being a scientist, I'm interested in how it's working in the body yeah. because once you understand how it's working, it's it's uh, makes it easier to design better studies and yeah. not uh, future studies. And so, you know, our study will be t too small to show, oh, yes or no, it, it decreases mortality or not that we're leaving that up to the large studies to show that and hopefully we can put a bit more science behind um, how it's working and what's happening in the body. And it's, it's a, such a complicated thing to design a study. I think people don't probably realise how um, the parameters and the limitations and the number of variables that you can look at and the primary outcomes and the secondary outcomes and, and so on. And you sexes, know. sexes is such a complex variable. Yeah. Each person that comes in is unique in their situation. So there's huge variability in the data, and that's where the biggest studies are good because that helps decrease, you know, um, statistical, the statistical yeah. analyses of those studies. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the results of the big studies coming out. Yeah, but these but these smaller ones are really, really important too, and it's great that we've got one going in New Zealand. So thank you very much for your work, to, um, Dr. Anitra. It's been absolutely fascinating, and thank you for your dedication to this. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. 
Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com. 